If you come back to John's Gospel and uh, chapter 12, and uh, we're a little early for Easter, um, but this is sort of, I'm not going to step on anybody's toes. I'd be very surprised if anyone's going to preach on this passage at Easter here or um, most places. But uh, the, the triumphal entry of um, King Jesus into Jerusalem has just uh, taken place, just sang about it. Um, cries of Hosanna, uh, the city of Jerusalem is uh, in uproar. People were wondering whether he'd come into Jerusalem or not, and he does come, and all the citizens are delirious. They're waiting for a great showdown between Jesus and the religious authorities. The religious authorities are absolutely appalled and in despair, and uh, we read it in verse 19 of John 12. Uh, the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. A bit of exaggeration, but of course, everyone had come from all the known world for the feast. And as we're going to see, it wasn't just Jews who came. It was Greeks and Gentiles, those who worshipped the one true God and went to a feast where one God was worshipped. They couldn't go into uh, the places where the Jews went into the temple, but they could stay in the court of the Gentiles and they could learn certain things. And there were many thousands of Gentiles who would come regularly for these feasts throughout the year. And some of these Greeks, some of these Gentiles, wanted to be there in order to see Jesus as we shall discover. And in fact, there it is in the very next verse. When, when the, the Pharisees have said, look how the whole world has gone after him. And here is almost an answer to that straight away. Verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. So here are these God-fearing Gentiles, these Greeks who've come up for the Passover feast. They're hoping Jesus was there. They're delighted to hear that Jesus is there. And they go and seek him out. They can't get near him. I mean, he's being mobbed, I expect. But they see his disciples, or ones they recognize as his special disciples. And they go and they speak to, first of all, uh, Philip. Why did they choose Philip? You may say it was only chance, but um, maybe they, they heard his accent and so on. He was from Bethsaida. It's particularly pointed out that he's from Bethsaida. Why would that be mentioned here? Well, because Bethsaida bordered onto Gentile territory. Perhaps it was a familiar accent. And when they found out his name, they knew he had a Greek name. Philip's a, a, a Greek name, and nervously they seek out somebody who they hope might be sympathetic uh, in their response to uh, in the question, can we see Jesus? Can we have a, a private interview with Jesus? And Philip, he, he's not sure. And so he goes to another disciple, who incidentally we, we know also came from Bethsaida, who was also Greek. And so he said, this is a bit of a Greek question here. I mean, here we have this Jewish festival, but we've got something to sort out here. So he goes to Andrew. And he says, what are we going to do? They're asking to see Jesus. Uh, dare we go and ask Jesus uh, about these Greeks? Because they were in something of a, a, a dilemma. Hadn't Jesus told them, do not go among the Gentiles? Didn't he say, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel? Wasn't this how he'd started out his ministry? 
Uh, and uh, Andrew perhaps might have said yes, but um, remember what he said on, on the other hand? He, he co commended the faith of a Roman centurion and, and uh, of a Canaanite woman. And he said he hadn't found faith like this anywhere in Israel. They're beginning to grasp that uh, what's going on here is something bigger than just something for the Jews. And so, happily, they go. They decide to bring the Greeks' request to Jesus, little knowing the effect that this seemingly trivial incident not knowing the effect this would have upon the Lord Jesus himself. And we learn about it here. And it's easy to just read through this passage and not understand just how momentous this moment is. When Jesus hears of this request from the Greeks, he can barely contain his joy and his wonder and his excitement. Immediately, we read in verse 23, Jesus replied, he's speaking back to them when they come with this request from the Greeks. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then various things happen immediately after this event. We haven't time to look at everything that takes place. There's this audible voice from the Father in heaven who is uh, acknowledging the significance of the, uh, of the moment, and, and it sounds like thunder. He's thundering out his approval for his son and saying this very moment is the very reason that you've come into the world. And uh, you can see this here in verse 27. Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And uh, the voice comes from heaven to that particular point. And then in, in verse 31, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people, not just Jews, to myself. And by this he's signifying the cross, we're told here. So this moment, the coming of the Greeks to Jesus, is a moment of enormous significance because this request was um, for Jesus, um, I suppose, a glorious foretaste of the many who will come from the east and the west and take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. This is what the gospel promises will happen. And here is this great at this, at this moment, when he's contemplating his crucifixion, these Greeks come to him. The Greeks have come to him. And uh, he is amazed. He exults in the fact, of course, that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just the sin of Israel. But he is also the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so he realizes with that great sacrificial image of himself, as the Lamb of God, he realizes, he knows, that if the world is to be saved, then it's dependent upon his being shortly lifted up from the earth on a cross. And that's why um, the Savior makes this solemn statement that I want us to focus on uh, this morning. Um, it's there in verse 24. We're going to concentrate upon this. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat 
falls to the ground and dies. It remains only a single seed or it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And the first thing to notice is how this verse begins. Um, it begins with that formula that precedes so many of Jesus' profoundest statements in the Gospel of John. Amen, amen, I say to you, verily, verily, I say unto you. This is, wherever you see that in John's Gospel, you know what's going to come, something of a huge importance. And uh, this is in response to the Greek's request. And this verse is all about the meaning and the necessity of the death of Christ. And, and, and here it is, just get it in your mind. Very truly I say to you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Um, the image of the seed, as you know, if you read the Gospels, which you have, I'm sure, the, the sown seed, the idea of the seed being sown, is used by Jesus in several different ways. Be easy to demonstrate that. Um, but here, I think you have the most astonishing use of the seed as an image, as a symbol, that you find anywhere in Scripture. Because here, a simple seed of grain sown in the ground represents none other than Jesus himself. He is portraying himself as a seed. It's enough that he should come down and take upon himself human flesh. But here he says, I'm like a seed. Think of the hymn, oh, what matchless condescension the eternal God displays. God will condescend so much to bring people, to bring sinners to himself through his son. But what an instructive picture this turns out to be. What, what's it all about? Just as the incredible um, principle of life is enclosed in that uh, drab, tiny brown husk of seed, so the author of life himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, enshrines himself in a human body. However, as I said, the picture here is, is not of the incarnation. We're, we're past Christmas now. This is a picture of the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The seed is sown in the ground. The seed rots. And to all intents and purposes, to human observation, it dies. No one at the time understood anything about the science of how a seed produces a plant. But to the naked eye, a seed seemed to be destroyed and it would just die, disappear as it were. And then from that, a plant would grow. And that's the picture that's being used here. The seed dies and yet the life within it is nourished and grows and rises above the ground as a new plant. And here is pictured the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, it reminds me of that picture in 1 Corinthians 15 where uh, that great chapter of Paul's on the resurrection and he compares uh, our, our bodies in this life with our um, glorified bodies in heaven. And uh, he says here, the body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. 
It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now Paul there is speaking about us at the resurrection of the dead as believers. But of course originally it applies to Jesus himself. It speaks of Christ. It speaks of this grain of, uh, of wheat uh, being sown into the ground and rising again, imperishable, honorable, powerful, and spiritual. And just as a plant grows for a reason, the reason being in order to bear fruit, so the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead in order that he might see his offspring or his seed, as um, Isaiah puts it. All those people that he continues to this day and to the future until he comes again, he continues to bring life and faith in him. They are his seed, the seed that results from the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is us if we put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But as I say, though the whole Easter story is here, he concentrates the focus is primarily on the death, the death of the seed. And his death is now so close, just days away, that it fills his, his field of vision. We're told here that his soul is troubled. So although he's filled with joy and excitement as his Greeks coming and asking to see him, it's also, it just reminds him and, and his, his fear is trouble. I, I, you know, in, in a very small way, I'm sure we've all been in situations where something's going to happen in the near future and it's very exciting and, and yet it also fills us with great trepidation at the same time. And, and, and these great powerful and conflicting emotions. I'm sure we've all at some time or other experienced conflicting emotions that really rack us and, 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 and cause us to wonder where to turn and what's going to happen. And in his human soul, of course, Jesus is feeling the same. Joy and wonder at the prospect of the fruit of his labors on the cross, but also great trepidation. We're told here that his soul is troubled. And... Uh, what in his troubled soul he is convincing himself and us of is the absolute necessity of the terrible ordeal he is soon to suffer upon the cross. Because just as the seed must die in the ground if it is ever to produce living seed, so Christ has to die for sinners if they are to be brought from death to life. So if you look at this verse in that way, if ever a verse teaches that the death of Jesus is no mere heroic act or uh, martyrdom or, 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 or some mere glowing example to us all, if ever there's a verse, verse that teaches us that his death is far more than that, this must surely be it. Unless he dies, no one is saved. So that's that's the doctrine. That's the teaching here. There are many people who call themselves Christians who don't believe that. I don't know why they think Jesus died. I say, maybe just as a good example for us to follow. But Jesus says, no, unless I die, no one can be saved. So that's the first thing we really need to understand. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now, the necessity of the cross 
is demonstrated here in two ways. One negative way and one positive way, and I'll explain to you what I mean. There's two parts to this verse. The negative side, the first part of this verse, expresses a rather startling truth, and yet a very beautiful truth, and one that should move us to adore our God and Saviour. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, or as it says literally, it remains alone. There's a great doctrine here that's it's rarely uh, considered, and it's the doctrine of the solitariness of God. Which is a big word. Just you know what solitary means on your own. The solitariness of God. Um, what are the first words in the Bible? In the beginning, God. And none of us can imagine this truth, but uh, there it is. No heaven, no earth, no time or space, no creation, nothing apart from God. And you can't imagine that, but don't worry, nobody else can either. God completely and utterly alone. Nothing but God. There is God, self-contained, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, needing nothing. I always think, you know, if, if you called somebody else that, if, you called, if I said to you, you were <laughs> self-contained, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, needing nothing, it wouldn't exactly be a compliment, would it? But then we're creatures who depend upon God. God is not like that. It's when we say God is a jealous God. If I said you're a jealous person, it'd be bad. If I say God is a jealous God, it's good. Why? Because everything should revolve around him. But everything shouldn't revolve around you. <laughs> or, or me. <laughs> or anybody. But it all revolves around God. He's a jealous God. That's, everything is meant to glorify God, right? And there is God in his solitariness. Before anything was created self-contained, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, needing nothing. But of course, that doesn't explain the wholeness of God, how we never could. But God is also, of course, love. And uh, we know that he's love, a love that was displayed eternally before the creation, between the persons of the Godhead, the Father loved the Son, before the creation of the world, and so on and so forth, every person in the Godhead. A love that was great and glorious, and yet, because we're here, a love that could not be contained within the Godhead. And so God in love becomes the creator of a universe designed to reflect his glory. And in particular, the creator of human beings like us who are made in his own image in order that we might reflect his love and enjoy fellowship with him. And though our sin destroyed that relationship, we know that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that those who put their faith in him should be saved. Now, this is how we approach the idea of the solitariness of God. We know the story well, how we praise God at Christmas time again for the incarnation. But consider the implications of our verse here. Verse 24, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, 
it remains alone. And here's the point, and this is an amazing point. Once the Son of God had taken upon himself our human nature, once he'd done that, he simply had to pay the price for our sins by his death upon the cross. Because if he didn't, he would be the only man in heaven. Put it another way. Though on the basis of his own spotless righteousness, because he was not a sinner, he could have entered heaven again as a man without paying the wages of sin, in so doing, he would have condemned his human nature to an inconsolable cosmic loneliness. The seed would remain alone. And that's an astonishing thought. And you can hear the pathos in Christ's words if you reflect upon it in that way. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, unless it dies, it remains alone. You know, the gospel is built into the very natural world. That's why all these parables of Jesus are so instructive. The same creator has his thumbprint upon everything in the world. You can teach so much about God from the things that happen in the world. And the cycle of death and new life is a wonderful way of thinking about the resurrection. But unless Christ dies, he remains alone. And I think that's wonderfully encouraging. The Son of God once needed nothing, but now he has become the Son of Man. He needs his people. You see that? His incarnation means that he has needs. He needs his people. Can you imagine the head without the body? Can you imagine the bridegroom without the bride? Can you imagine the vine without the branches? Or the shepherd without the sheep? Or the firstborn without his brothers and sisters? Of course you can't. But the wonderful thing is, neither can Jesus. He cannot imagine himself now without us. He only ceases to be alone when he not only loves, but is himself loved in return for all eternity. And that's a wonderful way to think about Jesus. That's why you can say Jesus needs us. He needs us in a sense as much as we need him. So that's the negative side that tells us something marvelous. But the second part of our verse demonstrates the necessity of the cross in its more familiar, perhaps positive form. Verse 24, again, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone, only a single seed. But if it dies, wow, it produces many seeds. And as I said already, in those seeking Greeks, Jesus saw the first fruits of the abundant harvest yet to be reaped among the nations of the world. No wonder we read in the previous verse, Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And when we think about glorification, and we need to think about this properly when we come to Easter time, because very often Easter is presented as being, you know, Good Friday, we're all very sad and we're black. 
And then Easter Sunday, wow, it's a party time and everything's great. Good Friday is almost bad, despite its name. And Easter Sunday is alone good. As though the glory resides only in the resurrection and not in the cross. But it's very, very important to remember that the glory lies supremely in many ways upon the cross. The very passion of the cross was glorious. Nowhere are the glorious attributes of holiness and justice and grace and mercy more gloriously displayed than when Christ is glorified in his obedience and endurance and matchless achievement upon the cross. When the kernel of wheat, which was Jesus, fell to the ground and died, the world was a wild spiritual wasteland. But now, 2,000 years and millions of true believing Christians later, there is no nation on earth untouched by the gospel. And that's the fulfillment of the prophecy of verse 24. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Praise God for that. But then in closing... Let's remember <coughs> that Jesus' supreme sacrifice upon the cross demands a response. And that demand comes immediately after verse 24, verse 25. Here it is, verses 25 and 26. We're going to close with these words because they're challenging, to put it mildly. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, He's talking about the cross. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. So there's the challenge and the application and the response that's demanded of us. Those who truly want to be, I'm sure we all do if we're Christians. Those of us who truly want to be Jesus' disciples must follow in his steps. We too are called to go the way of the cross. Not physically, but we are called to go the way of the cross spiritually. And those of us who die spiritually, who die to sin, as the Bible puts it, by God's amazing grace, may, like Christ, follow him in fruitfulness. May become spiritually fruitful beyond anything we might imagine. It's that death to self, it's that death to sin that results in fruit. That's the principle here. He's speaking about himself. He's used an image from nature to show the principle, and now he's applying it to us and saying, do you want to be spiritually fruitful? Well, then you must go this way. You must go the way of the cross. Take up your cross daily and follow me, as it says elsewhere. And only that way, when we die to ourselves and our sin and our own desires and put Christ first instead of ourselves first, then we will be spiritually fruitful. Whatever spiritually fruitful means for you. It doesn't necessarily mean you become a great evangelist and many people are converted as a result of your life. Although it may do. It means that you show all sorts of fruit in your life, which pleases God and glorifies Him and blesses you. Whatever it means... The way of the cross 
is the way to spiritual fruitfulness according to the passage that we have before us. That's surely a promise for those who are not only prepared to count the cost of being a Christian, but are prepared to pay it as well. And there are many Christians who know how they should be living who don't live that way. And I guess most of us are like that much of the time. But because we do know the way, it's a promise of blessing that follows. I want to just close by echoing um, a great prayer that ends uh, Psalm 72. Psalm 72, you don't need to turn to it, you can if you want. Psalm 72 is an amazing, amazing psalm. It's uh, about, it's a psalm of Solomon. It's using Solomon as a type of Christ, saying what a great king he is, praise him and so on and so forth. And then it expands and becomes just way beyond anything that Solomon could ever have achieved. It's just using him as a type. And it ends in a way which talks about the great harvest that's going to be upon the earth when the Savior comes, the great king, uh, the king of peace, Solomon, the great Jesus, comes eventually into the world. And it ends like this. May grain abound throughout the land. On the tops of the hills may it sway. Wow, even the tops of the hills, not usually the place where you'd expect grain to be, more in the valleys, but wow, this is so abundant, this crop that's going to come as a result of the kingdom being extended all over the world. Here's the picture from the Old Testament. May grain abound throughout the land. On the tops of the hills may it sway. May the crops flourish like Lebanon and thrive like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. Then all nations will be blessed through him and they will call him blessed. Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen.